This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. Eric Berry. Hey. Uh, Brian Hogan. Hello, everyone. It's been a while, Brian. Yeah, good to be back. Yeah. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're just going to talk about some of the stuff we've been playing with or learning lately. Um, Brian, you recommended this. Do you have some idea of the, the direction that we should start off in? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that people do with Rails and, and Ruby and stuff on, on a daily basis that might not be like the latest and greatest stuff out there because you're working on an existing product and or existing project and you just you just haven't had a chance to look like, um, you know, I mean, for a great example, that would be, are you, you know, are you playing around with the Rails 5.2 beta and what are your impressions? Um, but it could also be like, what additional new technologies are you are you experimenting with? See, you know, sort of what's next. When, when, I, when I proposed this idea to the panel, I thought, the way I just the way I decide what technologies to invest in are looking at the people that I look up to, the people that I respect, and find out what they're what they're digging into. What are those mm-hmm. kinds of things that they're digging into? So I thought it might be interesting for for our audience to kind of explore that. Like what are the kinds of things that we're working with that we're seeing? Uh, you know, not necessarily trying to predict the future, but these are the things that I find interesting. Or even on the, uh, the flip side of that, here's a new thing I've been playing with and I can't stand it. I think that'd be interesting too. <laughs> nice. So you want to you want to have the episode about React then? Oh, <laughs> not going to take those. Uh, not going to take those. Too, not going to take too many cheap shots. So. <laughs> oh, funny, 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 funny. You know, so n- now that you guys mentioned it, uh, I've been playing around with the React a bit lately, and and for all seriousness, you know, at first I just had this horrible view about JavaScript frameworks with Angular, with React, Vue.js, all of them. But I found that React and just with it being component based, it's actually really cool to use it as kind of like sprinkles within your application to where something that you know it's going to take a long time to render some kind of view, uh, whether you're calling so many partials or whatever, that's just overhead that your application has to send back to the client. But if that partial already exists in some form or fashion on the JavaScript side or within the browser, then you can just simply tack on to the client CPU to render out those partials. It's going to be a lot faster. So all you're responsible for doing is serving up the JSON data or the uh, prop data to the React component. So I've been playing around with it a bit lately and I found that using it as a full-fledged JavaScript framework where it's completely separate from your Rails application is kind of lame. But using it as sprinkles and just adding in components where necessary to optimize some of your application, it's actually really cool. Yeah, there are a couple of... uh... There are a couple of plugins for Rails uh, that I found really useful when working with React that would let me, like, like, you know, generate from the Rails side, generate the first uh, instance of the component. So then it could, just, you know, then it would update itself. And, and it was, they were really handy. And I liked that approach too. I, I agree wholeheartedly that I found it to be very useful uh, in building out a couple of apps where uh, I just used the React components on the, on the client side rather than building a whole separate app. I think it's interesting, you know, you're talking about some of this and, you know, in the Angular community and a lot of the people I talk to in the React community, when they talk about using React or Angular, they're talking about building single-page apps. And I, I really love the idea of the JavaScript sprinkles. Where have we heard that before? Oh, yeah, we talked to DHH <laughs> last week. Yep. Um, but, yeah, you know, so you just pull it in where you need it, um, you know, make it do whatever it's got to do, and, and that's it. And I think a lot of people get 
scared away from a lot of the modern frameworks because they feel like they have to understand all of the routing and other garbage that comes with building a spa. And you don't have to do that. You can just sprinkle it in. Yeah, I got to say one of the things I'm starting to see a, some some uh, a little bit of pushback on from people, which I find really nice. I'm starting to see this uh, this pushback away from Redux. I'm starting to see more and more people who are teaching uh, React courses on Pluralsight, some bigger names in the React community, really starting to pull away from from Redux and saying, look, really, you know, use React. It's great. Um, keep your state where it makes sense. Hoist your state to a, a, an outer more comp an outer component and, and push it down, uh, and do your orchestration that way rather than just reaching for Redux because everyone says to use it. And you know that that's worked for me too. It's it's you know it's time to involve Redux very very later, and that's uh, it's nice to see more and more respected names in the React community saying things like that. Um, I find the React part to be quite pleasant. I find the uh, React and Redux stuff to be a little bit more, um, I think, I would say heavyweight than I'd like to see for web programming. Yeah, just but I understand why. I understand why it's necessary in some cases, but I think it's it's very much like everything else that we do. You probably don't have those cases, and when you do, you'll know it, right? You know, don't don't start there, end there. Yeah, just to pile on here, I mean, you know, in the Angular world, they have NGRX, which is essentially Redux for Angular, and it was heavily based on and influenced by Redux. And yeah, same thing. I mean, I'll just throw in an, uh, an Angular service, which is essentially a TypeScript class, right, to maintain my state. And it's really simple, has a handful of variables, you know, that have arrays and crap in them that I can change or add to or take stuff out of. And for the most part, I can get away with that with 90%, 99% of the stuff that I do. And so I'm, I'm, I'm fully on board with you there too. And one of the nice things about not making a full-fledged uh, as single-page application is you still have Turbolinks, which I still think is amazing. And you also have the ability to create a hybrid app. Like I know DHH's um, with Basecamp, their Basecamp 3 uh, hybrid app on iOS and Android is doing really well. And it feels and looks like a full-fledged native app. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think that, you know, the premature jump to everyone must use Angular or React if you're doing a Rails application, just do it API only. Uh, it was too much of a jump. And I think adding in the sprinkles, as DHH said, is really the way to go. Because you still I, I, have yeah. the core of what makes Rails powerful, you know, with the action view, with all of its ties into the core framework. So... Exactly. I think I think the the reason that people did that though was that there was no leadership from Rails. It was really difficult to sort of see how if you have the asset pipeline how you're going to really do that that integration. It was left to sort of third parties to figure it out and release some sort of you know some some plugins and and stuff that kind of worked, but it was still a lot of it, it didn't feel very Railsy because it wasn't it was left up to you to figure it out. But if you look yeah. at the 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 webpacker stuff that's integrated with the Rails 5.1 and above it's laid out for you how to do it, and it's laid out really well, and it's very, very easy. If you if you spin up a new Rails application and you add the, the Webpack equals React on it, or uh, you're going to get everything you need. You're going to get a Webpack configuration that's that's organized like a Rails configuration would be. You know, it's really easy to find the components you're looking for uh, to configure your build. It's really easy to to figure out where you're supposed to put stuff. Um, this is an example of Rails. Leading again, uh, leading towards a good practice, leading towards an opinionated practice. Look, if you're going to use React, this is how you should do it as sprinkles, and we're going to give you the boilerplate to do it. We're going to give you a samples, a sample component, so you see how you integrate things together. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're going to lead, and, and I think that's what happens when you have a, a framework that, with a history of leading, all of a sudden stop leading for a while, and everybody else kind of tries to figure out how to do it, and so they all have a, they all have skin in the game, right? No, you must do it this way. And like a lot of the separating the React stuff from the Rails stuff, it, from what I've seen, has mostly been out of necessity. It's just easier. It's just easier to use React CLI to create your React application mm -hmm. and then do make the back end separately. It's just easier from a workflow standpoint because integrating them together wasn't very fun. It wasn't very easy. Um, and when you got stuff to build, when you have things to ship, easier is better. So I, I look forward to seeing what people 
uh, seeing a mindset shift with the the Rails 5.1 and Rails 5.2 stuff and, and the, the Webpacker stuff. I look forward to seeing how that affects things going forward. Yeah, and I've been playing around with that a lot lately. And one of the cool things I've found is that when you do use it as JavaScript sprinkles, per se, then it feels more like UJS instead of mm-hmm. writing or learning this whole nother framework. And I think that's extremely powerful to the Rails community to where they can keep the same logical thinking or the same mindset that they have, shift it just a little bit, and use it as a UJS, especially with the React Rails gem in addition or in conjunction with Webpacker. It makes it so easy to where you don't have to think outside the box of what you're normally accustomed to, but you can adopt the latest technologies with just a small shift in your mindset. Yep. So I, I think that um, the other day I saw a tweet and I uh, and I thought it was so interesting because it made me it made me take a, a, a retrospective look at, at myself and think uh, why do I why do I think the way I do? And the tweet was something like uh, it, it was basically saying that um, you know there's this awesome single page app generator, single page gener- static page generator. It's called HTML. <laughs> and I've heard and of it. I thought to my and I thought to myself because I, I I've been wanting to create a single page and I'm like how can I create it well how do I choose which which static page generator I'm going to use and and I see this tweet I'm like oh my gosh I am I am just absolutely out there thinking that I need these things when the, when the solution is so simple and right there in front of me mm-hmm. and and then then we talked to uh, we talked to DHH last week. I, I I look at the situation that I'm in in my day job and I think, wow, we we really took this project from being a, a monolith where basically two people c- continue to build this and we both knew the top and the bottom because everything was everything was pretty much cookie cutter rails. And then we introduced through through Webpacker uh, React. And then on top of that, because we were newer to React, we're like, OK, well, now we have to add Redux in order to do this. So now we have this Redux Reactness. And then we've had to hire three full-time developers to manage the front end when it was absolutely unnecessary to do so. So I look at the and DHH had an awesome quote, um, and he said that front end developers um, have a self congratulatory. Uh, it's all about self congratulatory complexity. Now I'm, <laughs> I know a lot of front end, right. I know a lot of front end developers who are fantastic, phenomenal. They they live and breathe on that, and they don't want to deal with the server side. And I totally understand that. And there's a place for that, right? But when it comes down to what drew people to Rails, it was the maximum effectiveness for the minimum amount of required skill. And maybe that's not the right way to say it. Basically. <laughs> Rails is like the 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 Swiss Army knife that can do everything, and it might not do everything perfect. It might not do concurrency wonderfully. It might not do like super high end front end um, interactions wonderfully, but it it does everything good enough. And this new thing that DHH is releasing, um, uh, what's it called? Um, stimulus. Stimulus, coming out in in the next version of Rails or coming out soon. I mean, that's going to be a game changer altogether. I mean, hopefully, at least for me, that's going to say, okay, I'm never touching React again. I'm never touching Redux again or any of those again because I don't need it. Uh, If I can go back to the core, my core talents, and be able to build something that is comparable to those people who are swimming neck deep in complexity, it's going to be so much better for me in the long run because I can now build something that's sustainable, that is easy for somebody to come in and grok and not have to juggle all of these dependencies and all of these mm-hmm. build steps, you know, this data flowing everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, I guess that's a little off topic, but that's, that's my rant well, that I've been thinking about for a while. And <laughs> that's the appropriate time to talk about it, but there you go. Well, one of the, one of the things that's important about what you're talking about there, the importance of, you know, playing with new things and exploring new things is that's what helps you form those opinions uh, and become a more, um, a more disciplined developer. Sure. People are swimming in neck deep complexity, but it's important. I think one of the most important skills a developer can have is the ability to separate the experimental from the production ready. And, yeah. and, and I think a lot of what we've been seeing, the, the, the running gag is 
by the end of this podcast, there'll be a new JavaScript framework, right? That's right. the running gag. But the, the, the reality is they're iterating very quickly and they're discovering what works and what doesn't work. And uh, you, you have react now you have you have people doing preact and uh, and which which is quite nice if you haven't had a chance to look at it it's quite nice um, because everyone's kind of building off of the decisions other people have made and said you know what mm-hmm. that's not exactly developer product you know productive for developers that's not something I want to get myself into I literally do not want to hire three additional developers for a team in order to just do something that could be done a different way. Uh, the, but you won't know those things for sure until you play with them. You know that you can you can look at all the blog posts, you can listen to all the podcasts you want, uh, listen to a bunch of people shaking their canes at new technology, uh, <laughs> like I'm like I'm known to do quite often. You know, oh those damn kids and their React. But the reality is, you know, you you got to get in there and you got to play with it because you have to make the decision because you might play with it and you might hear you might hear me saying how i can't stand redux on a podcast but i got to tell you if you're into it and you're using it and you find real value in it you know that's great because you and i both attempted to play with it you and i both mm-hmm. came out of it with different needs and, and that's the thing is that everyone's needs are different so that's the lesson that you that's the lesson is try stuff so you can make those informed decisions for yourself in the context of your project. Because what works for me isn't going to work for everybody. Me, I, I tend to find myself in projects where Rails and Turbolinks works great. Because um, those are the kind of projects that I work on. I, I very rarely need uh, the, 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 the Elm stuff that I'm playing with. Yes, there are some cases where I want to use it. Um, but then I have to look at myself and go, what will, what will the impact of using this be? How fast does it change? How fast will I have to update it? Is it experimental or is it production ready? I think that's the skill that you get from playing with new stuff, using your mm-hmm. previous experiences and and figuring out, you know, comparing what you're seeing now and what you're using now against what you've learned previously. So here's something you can quote me on. From what I'm hearing, it sounds that starting a new Rails application with React is a premature is a premature de-optimization. <laughs> so, I, want, I, I wonder about I love that. that. I mean, oh I my mean, gosh, that's perfect. I, I think it's great, man. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I'm learning to like React, you know, but I mean, unless if it, it's a tool in your tool set, just like anything else, if you just go full-fledged all react, 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 then you're abusing a tool. You know, it's just like polymorphic associations. I'm not going to make every little thing in my application polymorphic just because there's no need to. You know, I'm de-optimizing my stack by adding in or overly abusing one technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think the same the same can, can be said for Rails itself. If you try to use Rails in an environment where you sh- where you literally should not be using it, uh, I think you 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 kind of you're kind of falling into that same trap, you know, using the thing that you love yeah. and in the, on the wrong situation. Like I have I have the, I have the the Codecaster app that I wrote for teachers, and the original version of that was in Rails, and it was a miserable miserable failure. So it's in Elixir and Phoenix right now, and I don't I don't I like Elixir and I like Phoenix. I don't use it for everything, because I don't. Um, as much as I love it, I don't think it's great for for database heavy applications. I don't like how the, the database stuff works. It works great. I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with it, but I don't like it. I'm not as productive as I am with Rails. So if I need to build something that's database heavy, that that presents um, interactions with the database on the internet, I'm going to use Rails for that. But if I need something that needs to crunch numbers and needs to do real-time uh, communication really fast with with little resources or you know, much less resources, I'm going to choose Elixir and Phoenix. Uh, and I'm going to use the various methods to make those things work together but I'm not just going to say, well, I know Rails, Rails works, TurboLinks works great enough. I'm going to just use that because I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's that's uh, fair when I tell people not to use React. When I say I'm just going to use what already works because that's not me doing the investigation work that I should be doing as a developer. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So have we bashed on React enough? <laughs> <laughs> I like I, I like I like React. I just I'm not a big fan of Redux, yeah. but that's a, that's a different story. Same here. Um, but what what other so so I've been uh, because because the Webpacker this isn't this isn't like this wasn't really announced everywhere, but you know, but it's it sort of tucked in the documentation and alluded to in a few blog posts. But you know, 
with the Webpacker gem, you can create a brand new brand new Rails application with an Elm front end, which I find absolutely hysterical because I've been playing with Elm for a year and I love it. Uh, I'm just not as good as that, as I'd like to be. But wow, is it fun to use in a Rails application? It is fun, um, and so I I, I want to encourage people to just play around with that. You, you you can scaffold the or you can bring out the new application with the Rails new, and then the, the Webpack equals Elm, and it will generate everything. It will install all the Elm dependencies you need, and it'll set up a basic Elm component, and then give you the instructions in the Elm component how to include it in your in your uh, your your index page for your app. It's just it's a hoot, and it's one of those things that just kind of got tucked in there because Webpacker supported it. Not that Rails supported it, but Webpacker supported it. I think that's really cool. So Brian, just uh, yeah. for me and the listeners, and maybe anyone else, what's the biggest difference that you see? Like why Elm? What does Elm bring to the table that maybe doing some JavaScript sprinkles with React doesn't? Well, I think the the thing is that. The way that Elm works is that it can be used as JavaScript sprinkles. So when, because Elm gets Elm gets compiled into a bunch of JavaScript and then gets exposed as a JavaScript object, and so you can just embed it on your existing page. The Pragmatic Studio has a has a, 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 a an Elm course you can pay for, but they also released this five uh, five or six video free series on how to use Elm with your existing JavaScript stuff. So they give some great some great context there. But the short version of it is, it is really easy to create this Elm application that then can talk through what they call ports and subscriptions to the rest of your the rest of your app. So a great example of that is I can feed when I instantiate the Elm application in inside of a web page, I can feed it all the server side data that I need. Like I can feed it that cookie cookie data. Or I can feed it the uh, authenticity token that I need for AJAX requests. I can kind of send all that stuff into the Elm application. And the Elm application can do its thing and make the AJAX calls, or even just send stuff out of the Elm application uh, back. And what what took me a while to get with Elm was I would see these demonstrations. I would see these examples of people using this weird syntax for creating, uh, you know, for creating the UI. Like they had these Elm functions they'd call to create a paragraph. And I'm like, well, that's just dumb. Why wouldn't you just use HTML? And then I started seeing people doing the same thing with JSX. They're, they're rendering components. And I thought, wait, that's what Elm is doing. And then I thought, wait, wait. We've had helpers in Rails for years. We don't we don't type an anchor tag. We use the link to function to create a link, and that's really what Elm is doing. And so when you see these code examples of Elm code where there's this mass massive nest of what kind of looks like HTML but isn't, uh, what I've what I've seen uh, is that really breaking that down into individual helper functions uh, cleans that up and and makes makes it more reusable. And so the biggest benefit to me has been I get all of the same things that I would get with React and Redux, but I get it all in a single language. You know, I get it, I, I, I'm not doing JSX and JavaScript. I'm doing Elm. I'm writing functions that return values in a, in a syntax that's somewhat similar to Elixir with the same kind of immutable, uh, immutable stuff, but it's also statically typed. So the compiler gives me all kinds of help as I make mistakes because it's like, Hey, I think you meant this because your function's returning this type of data. So I think you mean to do it this way. Um, I haven't been this excited about programming in a long time because the compiler is my friend. Rather than just yeah. doing what every other language does to me, which is you made a mistake, go fix it. Uh, which is why I hate <laughs> static. Which is why I hate static typing because the thing just spits at you. No, you're doing it wrong. Um, no method for nil class. Yeah, yeah. I, that's not helpful. But Elm, Elm is like literally, literally trying to help me out. It's, 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 it's like a, you know, it's like the way I, the way I treat tests. It's helping me um, figure out my way out through the code. And so the idea of the Elm architecture, which is what they use for what, what they call their, um, you know, their life cycle for an app, um, it's very similar to what React, uh, React and Redux does, but it's a lot simpler to implement. And you can see an example of this. When you use like the, the the creating a Rails application, and telling Webpacker to use Elm, it, it gives you uh, uh, the 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 React or the Elm component that it gives you is the Elm lifecycle, the uh, the Elm architecture in a file that just prints hello world. But you can at least see how the actions work. You can see the whole the whole workflow there, um, and it's it's you get the same benefits as as React and Redux, but you don't have to 
get react and then get redux and then get typescript and get all these additional things together to do it it's very much like rails is where here's the box here's all the tools you need they're in the box just use them you don't have to worry about hooking things together just use them and i i find that fantastic it's it's funny hearing you talk about this because i just uh, right before this, I did an interview for my JavaScript story podcast, and uh, we were having the same conversation about TypeScript and the TypeScript language service. This is another thing I've been playing with lately, but, uh, you know, you use like Visual Studio Code or anything like that. And it's funny because they actually use the um, TypeScript language service to parse JavaScript, uh, among other things. So all the nice JavaScript tooling that you get in VS Code that, that all comes out of the TypeScript language service. And uh, yeah, all that tooling, all that checking, all of the, the nice stuff that comes out of it. Granted, it's not as uh, deeply functional programming oriented as Elm is. And so, you know, there, you know, there are different benefits to one versus the other. You know, one, uh, you know, depends on immutability and function, functional programming to maintain sanity. And the other one leans heavily on type, uh, type references and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean the tooling and just the checking and all of the nice stuff that comes out of it so that I don't have to hold in my brain all of the things. And then in the end, you know, I get something that's sane. Um, you know, it, it it's really just a terrific world we're living in now where I, I have something that will look at my JavaScript or my front end code, you know, my TypeScript in my case and Elm in your case, and it does all of this sanity checking in a way that doesn't interrupt flow so that I can go and get a whole bunch more work done without worrying about the stupid little minutia that comes with writing front-end code. Yeah. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. The thing that's held me off from Elm, because I got pretty excited about it after hearing you go off on it, but then I heard the uh, interview with Hal Fulton. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I heard another interview. I can't remember where it was. It might not have been on our podcast, but where they were talking about uh, Elm and one of the biggest issues with it is doing any type of file transfer, file uploads, that kind of stuff. And it made me realize, well, you know, wow, there are so many libraries out there that I rely on that are mm -hmm. jQuery based or whatever, um, and, you know, NPM based that do so much of the work for me. And same, you know, I look at that as in rails as well. Like it would be great to be able to, to, uh, to rely on existing libraries that would support that. But that kind of added some fear to me, uh, if we're jumping into Elm and I, and I backed off after that, everything else yeah. sounds wonderful. It sounds well, like you're, you're, the, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a real valid part. And that's why I encourage, I encourage you to take out, take a look at the free, uh, the, the free video series that, uh, pragmatic studio has on using, uh, Elm with outside libraries because that's how I do it. Is Elm Elm allows you to expose it'll Elm the Elm application can subscribe to external events and it can uh, other other things can pass data into an exist into a running Elm program. So a great example of that is using it with WebSockets. You get a web if you're using Socket IO, you're not just going to like throw that out. You're just going to use it. But then when you get a uh, when, when you get a, a socket event fires, you just tell the, instead of like updating the DOM with it, you just send it to the Elm application that's listening for this event. Say, I got some new socket data. Here you go, Elm. And then Elm on the Elm side picks it up and does stuff with it. So the, so you can use Elm with any existing libraries that you need. 
And that's how I started using it was actually starting to starting to put little bits of Elm into an existing application. So I got a chat the, the chat functionalities in one of my apps is now using Elm instead of using you know JavaScript. But it's still I'm still using the the WebSocket stuff that I that I used before, and it's just subscribing and publishing events that way. Hmm. It's a very sane way of doing things because when Elm gets the data, it checks it. You know, it, it, it does the type checking on the incoming data and, and all that kind of stuff. But it, but it is definitely kind of a blocker. It's sort of the same thing that I ran into when I started doing the project in Phoenix and Elixir. It's like, oh, gosh, you know, I started this thing in 2014. There's no there's no there was no equivalent to like devise in. in the, so I'm back to, oh, gosh, I have to write, you know, signups uh-huh. and <laughs> password recovery and stuff again by hand. Yeah. And and that's sort of the risk you take of, of being an early adopter with things. And that's but that's what. That's what experimentation is about, right? You get into it, you realize these are the limitations. I can't work with those limitations right now. Now is not the time to to work with it. I'll do something else. And that that's that's the choice you have to make. But you know, hopefully everyone makes that choice by at least digging around with it a little bit instead of listening to me talk about it, right? Well, and some people really thrive on being that pioneer, right? So they know the road's going to go through there. So they're the one out there with the pry bar pulling the rocks out of where the road's going to go. And then, you know, other people are, well, I'm just going to wait till it gets settled a little bit better. And, you know, because I, I want the running water and, you know, whatever else that comes from, you know, having a civilized uh, programming uh, community around it. So, you know, it, it it's interesting in that way, too. I mean, a lot, where we're talking about, Oh well, it doesn't have this nicety. But the flip side is, is that you know some people they they want to go out there and and lay the pipe and grade the roads. One of the things that I found interesting about Elm compared to some of the other things that I was discussing was that um, Elm came with a story related to look. I, we understand you have existing stuff you want to work with. Here's the here's the how you do it. It wasn't left up to mm-hmm. uh, some person with a blog that figured it out. It was literally, Hey, if you have existing stuff, here's how to do, here's how you use it. Whereas react is a little wishy-washy on if you need to use existing stuff, they sort of, Oh, you could wrap it with a component. You could do it this way, you do it that way. And or Elm was here is how you work with existing stuff. This is the way to do it. And and that's what I appreciate because that's what drew me to rails. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, well, you could do it this way. It was, here's how you do it to be successful, which is what I, I need to do. I need to write code uh, that makes problems go away for people. And I want to do that as quickly as I can. Yeah. So this is David Richards. I came in late to this conversation and I can tell you, I'm really stoked to write my first program in Elm. <laughs> I've just been looking up uh, how to get started. And, and, and after this much, it's enough, I think, for me to want to, to, to use it, see what I can do with it. I think it's, I think it's really fun to, um, you know, to, to play around with, these kinds of things, especially since there's this, you know, I don't know if I want to call it first class support in Rails, but it's pretty great. The experience of, mm-hmm. of spinning up the app with the with the Elm stuff built in was great. Um, you know, we've been talking about things that other people have been other people are playing around with, and I feel like I've been dominating the conversation talking about Elm. So I'm going to go quiet for a little bit and let's you know hear, hear from other people about what they've been talking about. I mean, it's it's funny we talk about this, but uh, I mean, most of what I've been working on is this podcasting app. And so it's just, you know, making the interfaces sane and things like that, which isn't really all that new, but it's, it's a challenge. And the big thing for me lately, the thing that I've been struggling with the most is just deciding at like making decisions on the, um, the revenue strategy for it. Right. So, you know, how much do I charge? How do I charge them? Um, you know, maybe I take a percentage of sponsorship money that comes in if people use the service. So how do I do that? Um, and, and all of those kinds of things. And then how do I make it easy for me to do what I do as far as scheduling and maintaining uh, things on the podcasts? So, yeah, it's it's just kind of an interesting thing. I've been looking a lot more at processes than I have been at, um, you know, libraries. And so it's, yeah, how do I, how do I sanity check what I'm doing and how do I make sure that the interface is what it needs to be and things like that. Um, which is usually something that I've delegated to other people, um, working in other jobs. So has it been fun getting back into that? Oh, heck yeah. (laughs) I've, I've really enjoyed it. 
Um, and it's it's funny because we get, I don't know, I, I don't want to talk too much about the the podcast stuff. I, I, I just don't know how interested people are in it. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is just, it, it's it's a different kind of puzzle because um, it's not, okay, how do I solve this hard technical problem? It's how do I solve the people pro- problems? How do I solve the process problems? How do I solve the 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 interpersonal things you know how do i set up a you know a process or a a progression that somebody can actually just follow to get the work done and then how can i automate pieces of that away you know and so um thereby making the job easier and so it's it's more about the people and it's less about the the code per se and it and it's really understanding how people work and it's it's a level of i guess psychology that i just hadn't put that much thought into in the past and so, you know, it's, it's the thinking around a business and around the needs of the business and around the needs of the people in the business instead of, you know, picking up some of this other stuff. And I've been playing with some other technologies too, but th- this is the thing that's been primarily taking up my time lately. And it's just, it's, it's really fun to look at it from a different angle and go, okay, what what are the hard things with this? And the hard things in this case aren't, oh, how do I come up with an algorithm for that? Because for the most part, that's all been solved. It's how do I use these tools in order to you know, make this the most efficient, most uh, simple way to, to do what I do, if that makes any sense. I think it makes a ton of sense. I mean, it, it, we, could have, we, could, we could talk for hours about you know, writing the wrong code because you didn't understand the process, right? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 so many, so many of the things that, unless you're working for a, a bleeding edge startup, so many of the things that we need to do are, they're they're sort of program from a programming standpoint, technically solved. You just have to figure out what problem you're actually trying to solve, which is what you know a lot of the stuff that you're doing uh, does. And I don't, I don't see a lot of programmers taking the time to to understand that side of things. It's like it's very easy to, I know the problem, I'll solve it with code. But I, I can't. I've lost track of the number of times that I didn't know the problem well enough. I didn't understand the problem well enough, and the code I wrote needed to be rewritten because of that. So I, I think it's it's really important. Well, the other thing that's interesting with this whole process too is that as a consultant or an employee at a business, there was somebody else that was the subject matter expert. So to a certain degree, if I didn't understand what was going on, I could go talk to somebody else and say, "Hey." How is this supposed to work? You know, how, how do people actually do this thing? And where this is my own business and, you know, I can, I've talked to other podcasters to see how they do things. Ultimately, I'm the one that has to make that up. And so it's, you know, it's kind of at a higher level. I have to be both the subject matter expert and the process expert as well as the technical expert. And, you know, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. And so I know how this stuff works generally. But I also then have the opportunity to look at it and say, how could I make this better? And so, you know, just going to that other level, instead of just kind of skating along at whatever I had before, is is also a mental challenge that's been really kind of fun to dig through and go, oh, well, what if I did this? Oh, that would save me a ton of time. And it would circumvent this other issue that I run into sometimes. You know, I've been listening to the uh, the Elon Musk biography, and I guess at Tesla they had that problem where uh, <laughs> everybody was close to the problem and nobody looked at the whole whole workflow, the whole process, and uh, realized they had some major issues. They were going down the wrong road with, with everything until they started to figure out um, somebody's got to look at the big picture too. Yep. And, you know, for the stuff that I've been doing with Drifter Ruby, a lot of times uh, it was very manual, any kind of changes I was making. So once the code got finished up and then deploying it, I had some scripts that would enhanceable that would automate it, but it wasn't truly automated with the CICD. So one of the things that I really worked on was uh, using GitLab Runner, which is basically a continuous integration runner for GitLab which is my preferred uh, code repository. Mm-hmm. And getting that to where it'll automatically execute my code, run a bundler audit, run the breakman, 
run my continuous integration or my RSpecs, and then getting it to do a continuous deployment over to Elastic Beanstalk on AWS. And just getting that stuff done, I mean, it was such a load off to where I didn't have to worry about it anymore. You know, if my codes are passing, if it's on my master branch, it gets deployed. Um, no downtime, no messes, no fusses. And it's been really nice to just kind of sit back and then focus on what I want to focus on instead of doing a regression test on the app afterwards to make sure that nothing's broken. You know, it's really that that time that the time you spend investing in your own infrastructure. You know, the, the the joke of the shoemaker's children have no shoes, but at a certain point, you <laughs> yep. you have to make your yeah. children some shoes. You have to do that because you're you're spending more time than you should on something that is isn't isn't going to benefit you. So that's that's some, that's cool to hear that. Which I, I find it interesting too when I have my own projects because, I mean, it takes a lot of clarity of mind to build a project and do it well, and then to be able to pull back and say, and it's going to take extra, and it's up to me. <laughs> you know, I get to be the grown-up in the, since there's no other grown-up in the room, I, I get to be that grown-up in the room. I'm tired of being the grown-up. <laughs> I'm out of that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like my kid, uh, my three-year-old son. You know, I guess he tries to be the grown-up sometimes. You know, I'm putting him to bed, and he gets angry. He's like, Dad, Dad, look, just go away. It's coming for a three-year-old. Like, oh, uh, yes, sir. Okay, I'm out of here. Yeah. One other thing that I've started playing with is Docker. So, um, oh I, yeah, Docker. That's I, the good stuff right there. Yeah, I, I haven't done a ton with Docker, but I have been fiddling with it a little bit just to see what I can do with it, and you know, in what ways I can manipulate it so you know a lot of times what what you really want is you just want to ship with the docker file but sometimes it's nice to pull something in like chef or um you know some of these other systems i think uh discourse has one they call pups or something like that um which puppet. is a whole it's a whole lot less a whole lot more lightweight than uh, puppet or chef and you know, just figuring out, oh, how do you do this and how would you do that? And when do you go for the heavy tool and when do you back off and go, never mind. Um, you know, it's just, it's it's kind of fun to figure that stuff out too. But I'm really early on that. So I don't know if there's a whole lot more I can say about it other than that it's just been kind of fun to see how far yeah. I can push it. I'll tell you, though, the easiest way to get started with Docker is, is um, what I've been doing, I would say for the last uh, year now, is that I... Uh, you know, once I started getting into Docker full time at my at, at the day job, I started figuring out different ways to use it for side projects. And the way I've been doing this, I don't install Redis or Mongo on my Mac anymore. I just spin up a container for each one of them and then throw it away when I'm done. Um, and and that's like that's it's quicker because I, I I've always run into problems getting those things to work properly, and just spinning them up that way. That was sort of how I got my feet wet. Really using it was. Oh, this project needs a Redis. I need Redis for this, or I want to use Redis for this. Well, there's a container. No, no installation steps. There's a container. Map the directories locally. Forward the ports. It's as if I installed it locally, but I didn't, and I can throw it away uh, easily when I don't need it anymore. And and I I find that just that little bit fascinating from a developer standpoint. Yeah. Well, and for and those who aren't, sorry, Chuck. I was just going to say, Docker Hub gives you a lot of that stuff too. So yeah, that's right. And there's a program called Kitematic, which is really awesome for managing your Docker containers. And it gives you a lot of visibility about ports and paths that are opened up. And it can make your life so much easier if you're not familiar with the CLI. You know, I've been lucky. I've been reading a, an early edition of a book coming out, Practical Docker, uh, by Brandon Gillespie. He's a coworker, And it's great. And the thing I love about it is like what Ben's saying you know, spin something up and, and, and see the problem a little bit differently. And, um, and there's simple recipes. That's the thing. I, I've, I've used Docker and I'll usually get into a, a project and I know how to, how to use Docker for this or that, but I don't think about it as a general tool, but I, I think it really is. It's a, it's a good general tool to pull out all the time. Yep. Well, it's also a good general tool if you want to try out one of these tools. So Brian mentioned, I don't have to install Redis. I can just spin it up. But the flip side of it is, is that if I want to just play with Redis without having to set it up, I can do it. And, you know, there are Docker container images out there for all kinds of stuff. I mean, if you wanted to try out, for heaven's sake, 
uh, Microsoft SQL Server. They have a Docker container that runs Linux and SQL Server, um, you know, which is kind of a just a different database, a different way of looking at things. But you get kind of a fully baked system right away that you can go and bang on. Um, the other thing is is that systems like uh, Discourse deploy with Docker, and so yeah. you know you you can carry a lot of this all the way through and just set up a small cluster of Docker containers on a server and run your app that way. Yeah, get a core get a core OS server so you have a lot of uh, so you have very little resource usage. Yep. Run the Docker daemon on it. Uh, look at look at Docker Compose and look at Docker Machine for pushing the images out. And it's really kind of a neat really kind of a neat thing to experiment with. Yep. We'll have to do a, a Docker episode later on. After I've played with it some, we'll find somebody who's a real genius with Docker. Sounds like Dave knows somebody, or David knows someone. So, <laughs> all right, I well, do. I'll, I'll bring Brandon in. Awesome. Anything else we want to talk about before we get to picks? I'll take the silence as a no. All right, uh, let's go do some picks then. For you, the listeners of Ruby Rogues, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Um, Brian, we haven't had you on for a while. Why don't you go ahead and do some picks? Um, okay. Uh, one of one of my uh, one of my picks is Korg Gadget. That's the iOS application. Uh, it's for making music. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some music some music picks because I like to make music. But uh, I was I was on a plane well, a lot this last week uh, and in airports lots of weekends. So um, I had some musical ideas and I had I've had Korg Gadget for about a year. And I never really played around with it. So being stuck in an airport and being stuck on a plane was a great opportunity to play with it. But um, I was able to compose something useful on it uh, that I was really happy with. And I was thinking, you know, how am I going to, I'm not obviously going to do the final production on my phone because that's insane. Um, uh, it's not my workflow. Uh, and and I found in the set, in the export settings that I was actually able to ex- export my whole setup, to, uh, the whole song, the whole composition from my phone to Ableton Live on my desktop. And that just blew my mind. So um, but now I have an ability with Core Gadget to compose something, sketch an idea out in a, in a format that I can then use later when I get home to a real workstation. And that, that just blows my mind. I've been waiting for that day forever because humming into a recorder, into a, vo- a voice recorder isn't the greatest way to do music. Uh, it works, but it's, this is way cooler. Uh, so that's, that's my, that's my first, my first pick. My second pick is that I, I, I really think people should go over to the Pragmatic Studio and look at those Elm videos and on, on those free ones on integrating uh, Elm with JavaScript, because it is, it is really, they give, they give some really great real world examples uh, that really gets you excited about something. And then, you know, purchase their course because it's a fantastic course on Elm. Awesome. Eric, what are your picks? I've got a couple of picks, actually, and they're not programmer-related at all. The first one, uh, I've, I've ever since kind of uh, passing along Code Sponsor, I've been spending a little bit more time with my family and myself. And uh, I found that um, Xbox is really fun. <laughs> so, so can confirm yes i'm like oh this is this is quite nice i can enjoy this so uh the first pick i have is um it's call of duty world war ii and that's just crazy awesome uh i've i had a lot of time a lot of fun playing that with my with my son even though it's probably not uh not appropriate to play that game with your eight-year-old son but you know i did and he loved it and it was great um the second thing i have is uh a case for my ipad I'm one of those guys that has like 20 different iPhone cases and like it's always looking for the best one. And, and honestly, I think I found the very best iPad case there is that holds your pencil. And uh, it's called a, uh, what's it called here? It's called the Poetic Lumos Flexible Soft Transparent Ultra Thin Impact Resistant TPU Case for Apple iPad Pro 10.5 Crystal Clear. So that is uh, what it is. I'll link to it, but it's pretty awesome. Uh, and that's my picks. Awesome. Dave, what are your picks? All right. So I have two picks. One is the Slack community, Ruby on Rails. Uh, you can find it at rubyonrails.link. There's about 8,000 people on there. So if you want to chat or just talk about um, some Ruby stuff, if you have questions, it's a pretty awesome community that I've been participating in. 
And my other pick is CureCoin. And that's at curecoin.net. And it mixes the idea of cryptocurrency and molecular biology and solving uh, real-world problems with cryptocurrency. So hashing and all that stuff goes to a good cause and you are rewarded with uh, cure coins. So by folding with your CPU or GPU, which I've had a huge stack in my basement for a few years from my um, mining days, but it's a great way if you're going to use up all that electricity to actually put it to a good cause. Nice. David, what are your picks? So I have some uh, non-programming ones today. Um, the one, first one is an article I really enjoyed. Um, it's by, it's by uh, Miles Klee. It's how brand, brands turn trolling into a marketing strategy. And uh, <laughs> just got some pretty good trolls there from uh, Spotify and Netflix and, uh, and Wendy's. Um, but, but what I like about it, the point is being authentic and, and having a real connection with people and being ourselves. And the other one is related. Somebody had asked on Growth Hackers about who's, who's knocking out of the ballpark with their single person blogs, who's really connecting with people. I just like that idea that, I mean, the promise of the information age was information, but it also meant connectivity and cyberspace and a way to actually have a better life. And I like it when it seems to be working. So those are my two picks today. Awesome. I'm going to throw out a couple of picks here. Um, I ran across the movie trailer for, um, for uh, Avengers Infinity. I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but you, you can all stop me if I have. Um, but anyway, uh, I just, I'm really enjoying the Marvel comics um, universe movies. So I am going to pick that. I am considering doing like a two day movie marathon where, um, we basically start at the first, uh, I think it was Iron Man was the first Marvel movie. I don't remember. And then just watching them all in order (laughs) for like two days and then going and seeing, uh, uh, Avengers. Um, but I've really been enjoying those. Um, I was encouraged to skip the Hulk movies, but I'll probably watch them anyway. Um, so yeah, that just sounds like fun. And then, um, and the other thing I'm going to pick, we were talking about the uh, about Docker, is I'm going to pick the the Docker plugin for Visual Studio Code. It's just really great um, and does a lot of setup for you and helps you figure that stuff out. So uh, yeah, if you're looking at getting into Docker and you don't want to figure out how to do it all by hand initially, then that's a good way to get started. So I'll pick that. And uh, Docker, just to, to give a little bit more context, does work on Windows. Um, and Dave posted a video, I think it was from Drifting Ruby, um, you know, where he showed uh, doing Docker on Windows. So anyway, if you're on Windows, it's another good way. If you're struggling with getting some of the more um, Unix, Linux uh, utilities to run, you know, go check it out there. And uh, yeah, those are my picks. Oh, I I should also uh, shout out real quick. Uh, You can go to forum.devchat.tv and join us on the forum. If you want to join us in the Slack chat, um, you have to be a patron on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash devchattv. Um, You know, I'm working on getting all the hosts and everybody in both of those places. And then um, I am finishing setting up Indiegogo's this week for podcasts on React, Vue, and Elixir. So if you're interested in any of those topics, um, check the show notes. We'll have links to those in the show notes. And uh, that's it. So we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.